Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. And I want to start by setting the stage a little bit and taking a look at the world that you and I live in. We live in a world and a society and a culture where idolatry has basically been eradicated. The gospel is unhindered. There might be criticism, but no one can stop you from sharing the gospel. And our culture is tied up in Christianity. Maybe not in this moment, but going backwards, our culture has had the church there, the gospel there, the Bible there. We built cathedrals. We printed Bibles. We were the first ones to send out missionaries. That is, Western, European, American culture has had the the church soaked into who we are. You cannot talk about American history or European history without talking about the church, the gospel, the Bible. And it's always an uphill battle. Every generation has been an uphill battle. We can look back and think about how rosy everything was, but it's always been tough. But it is true, historically, that God used the capital W West to evangelize the whole world. That God has been using us to be his forerunners throughout the rest of the world. And all of that, that we are the beneficiaries of, the fact that you're not worshiping druids and trees and everything else right now, is because of the story that we're going to read today in Acts chapter 13. The Lord had told the apostles in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you remember this, this is kind of the theme verse of the book of Acts. He said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We've seen in this book so far, the gospel filled Jerusalem. It filled Judea. It filled Samaria. It's even spread to a few Gentile outposts and to the Decapolis and places like that. But now, in this story, we're going to see the tsunami start to crash over the rest of the world. Now, I looked this up because I have heard things, but I wanted to see it for myself. And I sort of fell into a YouTube research hole on tsunamis. But I'm going to talk about this. A tsunami is caused when there is a seismic event under the water. When tectonic plates smash into each other and something gets forced up or forced down and the water is displaced. It's a ton of water. And what happens, it will all get sucked out away from the coastline first. It'll get drawn in. You know how a wave will get drawn in and then crash? Imagine that on a grand scale. Pulled all the way out from the beaches. And then it's not a big wave like you see in the movies that smashes down. It's more like a big surge of water that just overwhelms the coastline. That is a pretty good analogy of what the gospel has been. There was a seismic event, if we want to call it that. That was Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. The events of the gospel. And that water was displaced throughout the whole promised land. It all focused in. It all drew back into the land of Israel. But now it is surged over the banks of the whole world. And it began in a lot of ways in the story that we're going to read this morning. This is when the gospel tsunami really began to push out, especially to the culture that gave birth to the one we're living in right now. So this is a very significant story for us. We saw a few weeks ago that Gentiles were finally brought in But now the gospel is going to begin to go to the Gentiles in earnest. So let's read this now. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And we'll spend quite a bit of time on these first three verses. And we'll go a little faster through the rest. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this text is picking up back in Antioch. We saw in chapter 12 the story of Herod Agrippa putting James to death, arresting Peter. Peter was miraculously released and then Herod Agrippa died Uh, when the Lord struck him dead with worms. You remember that story. And now we're back in Antioch. And you remember this is where the gospel first began to really go out to the Gentiles. Barnabas had gone up and retrieved Saul and brought him back. And this passage introduces us to the leadership of that church, the prophets and the teachers. Now, real quick, I want to note a difference between a prophet and a teacher. Why is that a big deal? Well, because very commonly you will hear people talk about prophets 
about prophecy, and they'll very quickly say something like, prophecy, which is just preaching, that is not the case. Prophecy and teaching or preaching are two different things. They are very similar in a lot of ways, but they're different in some very fundamental ways. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They're separate there, and they're separate here as well. A prophet is going to be delivering direct words from the Lord, revelations as Paul would call them that the Lord has spoken to them, and now they're speaking that to the church. A teacher is somebody who takes the doctrine, the word of God, the scriptures, and expounds that to the church. Two different things. They're both important. They're both good. One's not better than the other. You need them both. And we're going to see in this chapter how they both work together. So what I'm doing right now is teaching. I'm opening up the Bible. I'm explaining it to you. I'm applying it to your life. That's teaching. Prophecy would be if I were to say something like, the Lord says to this church. And it's not anything that you can quote from the Bible. It's certainly going to be in line with the Bible because the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict himself. But it is important to know that they are different things. And we have five names here. I want to run through this because this is like a who's who of the early church. And very, very interesting characters here. So I want to talk about each one of them. First, we have Barnabas. We've already met Barnabas. He was a Levite, which meant he would have had some responsibilities in the temple. His real name was Joseph. They called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because that's who he was to the church. He was first known because he sold a piece of land and he donated that to the church, no questions asked, so that the people who were poor and suffering under the persecution could be taken care of. And that's where that name came from. And as we see Barnabas throughout the book of Acts, he is the guy that would find people see the best in them, love them, and then bring them into the fold. And most importantly, he did that with Saul. He did it with John Mark. He did it with the church in Antioch in general. We know that he was from Cyprus. And because he had money to give, he would have been a wealthy man. And he was the one that the church sent, the apostles sent, to oversee what was going on in Antioch. Because they had heard that there was some evangelism going on and the church had grown. So they said, Barnabas, go check it out. And Barnabas just fell in love with it and stayed. So here he is as one of the prophets and teachers here. Second, we have Simeon or Simon. Those really are the same names. The name Simon is a different version of the name Simeon, who is, of course, one of the sons of Jacob. So that's why in some places you'll see, actually, I think in the book of Acts, James is going to refer to Peter as Simeon because his name was Simon, but it's the same thing. You understand. So Simeon of Niger. And that word Niger is Latin for black. It's where we get the word Nigeria from, the country in Africa. It's also where we get the word negro in Spanish from, which means black. It comes from that Latin word Niger, which means he was likely a dark-skinned man, probably from Africa, which is pretty exciting because we tend to think of the early church as being Jews and then Europeans. And there's a reason for that. That's the story we're going to follow. But the church had a very strong presence in Africa for a very long time. It is also possible, and it is traditional, that this is not only Simon from Africa, that this is Simon of Cyrene, the man that carried Jesus' cross when he couldn't carry it any further. There's a few reasons for thinking that. First of all, the people from Cyrene, according to Acts 11.20, we already read this verse, were the ones that founded the church in Antioch. Or really, they didn't found it, but they were the first that began to go to the Gentiles. So there was a big Cyrenian influence here in this church. So Perhaps this is him. That's what the tradition tells us. There's not a great biblical reason where you can stand on and say, yes, that's true, but it could be. And if it is, I think that's pretty cool. We do know, according to Mark 15, 21, that he did become a Christian, that he had two sons named Alexander and Rufus. Paul in Romans 16 would talk about Rufus and his mother. So this would have been Simon of Cyrene's wife, who he said was like a mother to him also. Now, where would there have been the chance for Simon of Cyrene's wife to be like a mother to Paul? Well, if they were ministering together in Antioch for a long time, that makes a lot of sense. So if this is the case, it's very, very cool. It might not be, but it is interesting to think about. Third, we have Lucius of Cyrene. As I said, according to Acts 11, the Cyrenians had a big influence. And Cyrene is in Libya. It's in Africa. But for whatever reason... I mean, whatever reason, for the Great Commission's reason, they started taking the gospel out to the Gentiles in Antioch. So this is where Lucius came from. 
This is not Luke. Some people will say, well, this is Luke because Lucius, Luke, it's just a different version of the name. No, Luke's name would have been Lucanos. We're going to meet him in Troas. This is a different name in Greek, Lucius. So not the same guy, but he was from Cyrene, which lets us know that there was a big influence from Libya here in this Syrian church. Fourth, we have Manaen, or this would have been Manachen in Aramaic, which means comforter. And it says that he was a lifelong friend. He was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this is not Herod Agrippa. This is not the guy we learned about last time who put James to death and then was eaten by worms. That was Herod Agrippa. This is Herod Antipas that he grew up with. This is the Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. And this is the Herod that condemned Jesus to death as well. Manahen grew up with him. And that word for lifelong friend in Greek is suntrafas, which means he was nursed with Herod. They would have grown up from children together. This was often done. Maybe he was related to somebody important. Maybe he was... He didn't have the parents that he should have, so he grew up in that house. Whatever the case is, they were very, very close, even going back to the same wet nurse, according to this verse. And here he is, a pastor teacher in this church. What happened? What, what went right here? Not what went wrong. What went right in this guy's life that brought him here? It's very possible. We read back in Luke that Jesus was attended by these women. You remember this? The, the ladies that kind of mothered the apostles and Jesus, because these were young men and they needed some mamas to take care of them, right? And that's where you had Jesus's mother and James and John's mother. And you had a woman named Joanna. And according to the book of Luke, she was the wife of a man named Husa. And Husa was the household manager or the steward of Herod. So there was a connection between Jesus and Herod's household because Joanna, whose husband oversaw the house, was walking with Jesus. Also, John the Baptist was regularly speaking with Herod in that house. So somewhere along the line, Manaen heard the gospel, believed it, and went out on the mission to Antioch. Very interesting. Maybe when Herod Agrippa forced out Herod Antipas, his uncle, maybe Manaen had to run for his life. I don't know. There's no history behind that, but somehow he ended up there. Fifth and finally, of course, is Saul. And this is Saul of Tarsus. We know him as Paul the Apostle. We met him in Acts chapter 8, the very beginning. And in Acts chapter 9, he was persecuting the church. He was a rising young star, a disciple of Gamaliel. He was from Tarsus, which is just north of Antioch in Cilicia. And he was converted on the road to Damascus. Remember that story? He spent three years in Arabia learning from the Lord, more than a decade in obscurity in Tarsus, until Barnabas went and retrieved him. Because Barnabas remembered Saul. Saul came in to the apostles, and you can imagine that he was... All hopped up on bringing the gospel to the Gentiles because that was his whole mission. So when Barnabas hears that there's this church up here in Antioch that is reaching out to the Gentiles, he goes, whatever happened to that guy Saul? He was very interested in bringing the gospel to Gentiles. Let's go get him. And so, again, you see the son of encouragement bringing people together. Those are the five people. You have Barnabas, Simon, Lucius, Manian, and Saul. What a cast of characters. No wonder this was the most effective church in the New Testament. Because this is who your elders were. <laughs> you had Barnabas and Paul and these other guys. And I also love how different all these people are. You see how the gospel brings people together. And that's not in some, let's put our arms around each other and sing kumbaya kind of way. What it is, is the distinctions between people don't matter in the church. You know this, don't you? Whether you're wealthy or poor. Simon of Cyrene, if this is the same Simon, he wasn't rich. He was the guy they dragged out of the crowd to carry Jesus' cross. You don't do that to rich people. Manian, though, grew up in Herod's household. Paul was an educated man. Barnabas was a rich man. But Paul had been in exile for a long time. We don't know anything about Lucius. So famous and obscure, wealthy and poor, light-skinned and dark-skinned even. All that matters in the church is the power of the Spirit and faith. That's how the book of Acts identifies people. That's how it evaluates people. This was a man, it would say, of so many people, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes a difference. Colossians 3 verse 11, Paul would write here, meaning in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. The church does not regard people according to the flesh. We don't categorize people the way the world does. We look at them through the same eyes that God looks at them. 
And it is for this reason, I think, because this church was setting such a great example of letting the Lord bring people together, that God is going to use them to spearhead the advance of the gospel into Europe. And this is what they saw. The church was worshiping. Just an interesting little note. That word for worship there is liturgeo. It's where we get the word liturgy from. Just an interesting little note. They were fasting. It doesn't make clear if it was just the elders or if it was the whole church. I'm inclined to think it was the whole church, but who knows? They were waiting upon the Lord. This is very similar to what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. When the church gathers not just to hear sermons, and the church did a lot of that. Paul has a sermon later on in the book of Acts where he taught into the night so that somebody fell asleep and fell out the window. They come back upstairs and then Paul finished the sermon. So the church in the beginning was very into teaching. But they also had these meetings where people would come together and allow for prayer and the exercise of spiritual gifts. I think the best description of one of these meetings comes from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. Paul says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up or for edification. Let all things be done. You need to make sure we're making room for those things. Worship, you guys, is never just transactional. I'll show up to church. I'll punch in, I'll punch out, and the Lord will give me what I need for this week. No, 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 that's not right. Nor is it something just to cross off our to-do list. You're sitting there at home and you're bouncing your knee because you've got some TV to watch. No, that's not how worship is supposed to be. Worship is waiting upon the Lord, and that word waiting is hard. That's not just a poetic phrase. If you want to wait on the Lord, you've got to wait. You've got to sit still and listen. And encounter God. That's what our gatherings should be. Encountering God. Giving room for the Holy Spirit. If we plan everything down to the T and there's no room for anybody to speak or pray or think or sit and meditate, just to be silent for a while, then when is the Lord supposed to speak? That's why fasting is so important, by the way. The church was fasting and worshiping. It forces us to listen when we fast. It's starving our flesh so that we are more in tune with our spirit. We can listen to what the Lord has to say. Normally, unfortunately, we tend to starve our spirit and feed our flesh. But the Lord has us do the opposite, to fast and to pray. When you're fasting, the Lord is going to speak to you. Start now disciplining yourself to fast and pray. Fast from, maybe not from all food, fast from something that's really not great for you anyway. Fast from soda for a while. Fast from what's your favorite thing that you're, constantly having too much of. Take a break from it. Step back. Take a break from coffee for a while and pray and seek the Lord. Take a break from Facebook. Take a break from TV, whatever it is, especially if we're home a lot, guys, and we're just, we've got nothing else to do, so we're just watching a bunch of TV. Maybe take a break and pray instead. I don't know if I can pray for two hours. Okay, don't feel like you've got to be talking the whole time. Sit, pray, fast, think, read your Bible, let the Lord speak to you, and you may just hear his voice. Because the word of the Lord comes from the Spirit here. Notice the Holy Spirit has lines here. The Holy Spirit said, comma, quotation marks. He said, separate to me. Why do I say that? The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it. He's not the force. He's a person. And he said to separate Saul and Barnabas. How did that happen? Was there a thundering voice from heaven? No. The church tended to record it when things like that happened. It probably was one of these prophets knew the voice of the Lord and he spoke to him and the prophet said, hey, the Holy Spirit is saying to us that we ought to separate Saul and Barnabas for what he's called them to do. I've been in meetings where that exact thing has happened through me and through others where people are in the room and we're praying and we're worshiping and the gifts are being exercised and then someone prays something along the lines of, Lord, I want you to show me what you want me to do with my life. And then either myself or somebody else will say, the Lord is calling you into ministry. The Lord is calling you to be a pastor or a missionary or whatever it is. And that's an intimidating thing, let me say. Imagine these guys here saying, God is telling you, Saul and Barnabas, to go to Europe and preach the gospel in every city. It's like, what? Are you serious? You, you want me to go and leave here and leave what's going on here? That's a, that's a tough thing to say. We have to be brave enough to speak out in those moments. We also have to, as pastors, be brave enough to allow that to happen. 
Imagine the pressure of trying to say that to Saul and Barnabas. But here's the thing. This is, this is can give us a little courage, maybe. They don't immediately get up and walk out. What do they do? They continued, verse 3, fasting and praying. They were testing the spirits. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. Paul says, do not despise prophecies. That's an important lesson. I don't believe that happens anymore. Paul said, don't do that. Don't despise prophecies. But test everything and hold fast to what is good. Not everybody who stands up in the church and says, thus saith the Lord, has heard from the Lord. Maybe they're just saying what's on their mind. And it might be fine and biblical, but it might not be from the Lord. Or it could be totally out of left field and not from the Lord. There are even false prophets that go out proclaiming things from false spirits. And the Bible says, check everything out. It is not a sin or a lack of faith to test what the Lord has said. If the Lord says something to you, don't just say, oh, I, I better not question that. If I question that, then I'm committing the unforgivable sin or something like that. No, take what the Lord has said, lay it out before him and spend three days fasting and praying. The Lord wants us to do that. We are supposed to do that in the church and in our own lives. And this is where teachers and prophets come together. A prophet will speak what they think is the word of the Lord. But if a teacher is there saying, you know, the Bible says that this, this, and this. So that couldn't have been from the Lord. That's when the prophets need to have enough humility to say, I submit to the word of God. Because sometimes there are deceiving spirits, the Bible says, that have gone out. And it's the word that holds us to the standard. The prophet is going to give us that word for the moment, right? For the right now. And the teacher is going to keep us in line in all cases. And you need both of those things. We need that in our life and they needed it then. And the Lord told them to go out to the work to which he had called them, which of course would be Paul's first missionary journey. Saul would have already had some indication of this. Back in Acts 9.16, the Lord told Ananias, I am showing Saul everything he must suffer for my name. And because the Lord says here, the work to which I have called them, it's very likely that Barnabas would have already had some knowledge of this as well. Maybe they had even talked about it. You know what? We should just go and just go to every city and preach the gospel in every synagogue. We hear that and we go, well, of course, that's what missionaries do. But they had never heard that before. This was just an idea in their head. And maybe it just was burning in their chest. And finally, they're in this prayer meeting and somebody says, I don't know what this means, but Saul and Barnabas, the Spirit is saying that you need to be separated for the work to which he's called you to do. And maybe they looked and said, well, I mean, do you know what that means, guys? And Saul goes, yeah, I think we're supposed to go on a missionary journey. And Barnabas goes, yeah, me too. God very rarely will just surprise us out of the blue with what he calls us to do. Usually he's been speaking to us for a while, I've found. And then he'll send somebody or there'll be something that confirms the will of God for your life. But here's the thing, and I want to talk about this for a second. This is something that God has called every one of us to do. This is not just a Saul and Barnabas thing. Go preach the gospel. We have all been called to die to our old selves, to be crucified with Christ so that the old life passes away, and to submit ourselves to the mission. Submit ourselves to the mission of the Lord. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. This is something that is for all of you and me too. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission applies to all of us. You can't say it just applies to the apostles. That doesn't work. It applies to everybody. We are all to be part of that mission. We are all drafted into that army. And even if you're just the one cooking the eggs in the morning for the soldiers, you're part of the war effort, right? World War II, the whole country came together and worked for the war effort. That's what we are as Christians. Not everybody's going to be the missionary going out there, but everybody is to be part of the effort. Keith Green said that this generation of believers is responsible for this generation of lost souls. That'll mess you up, won't it, thinking about that. But hopefully it'll motivate you too. Again, this does not mean everybody's to go out to a foreign land. Many of us, I'd even say most of us, are to stay where we are. There's nothing shameful about that. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 30, when some of David's men went out to fight and some of them stayed back to guard the baggage, David made it a rule that if you stay back and guard the baggage, you get just as much of a reward as the people that went off and fought. 
Third John chapter one, verse eight, there's only one chapter, but verse eight, he says that when we are fellow workers with the missionaries, we receive their reward because this, this guy that he's writing to Gaius was housing missionaries in his house. And John says, you're going to be rewarded for that. He didn't say, why didn't you go? He said, no, you're doing your share. So we're not all to be out in the world. We're not all supposed to go to South America or Africa or China or whatever it is. But every one of us is to be part of the mission. And the Lord has a part for each one of us to play. They might be different, but it is your responsibility to find out what your part is and then to get going. Hear it again. Your responsibility to find out what the will of the Lord is for your life. How are you to contribute to the war effort, to the mission? And the Lord will tell you. The Lord doesn't keep secrets like that. You come to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? God's not going to say, I'm not telling you. You're going to have to figure it out on your own. No, God's going to tell you because it's too important for the Lord to keep it secret. What commanding officer is going to get a, a, a phone call from his soldiers and say, okay, general, what do you want us to do? He's going to say, I'm not telling you. That's ridiculous. The Lord's not going to do that. He's going to tell you. He might give you one piece at a time, but he'll tell you. We as a church exist to support one another in our individual missions. Paul and Barnabas are being sent out on a missionary journey. The church prayed for them, laid hands on them, and sent them out. We can assume they financed them as well. We as a church are to help each other. Each one has our own part to play in our own lives, and the church exists to make it so that we can accomplish that mission. Barnabas and Saul, they set a great example because you see in verse 3, they left. They went. They didn't say, oh, you know, God's called me to be a missionary. And then they walked around for five more years talking about how someday they're going to go on the missionary journey. They got up and left. Hey, if you're called to ministry, get up and go. What are you waiting for? I've known so many people, and this might only apply to a few of you who are watching, but I've known so many people that are called to ministry and delay for year after year after year until they just don't go. And it's done. And they say, yeah, I used to think that when I was a kid. Very few do what God has called them to do. And I'm not talking about just being pastors. The Lord has called you to reach out to your neighborhood. The Lord has called you to witness to your family or to write your story or to write that song or whatever it is. You've got to do it. The mission is too important. Be obedient. You can dull your conscience if you go too long. It's like taking an iron and steaming your conscience to where you can't feel it anymore. And you no longer feel bad about ignoring God's will. Because you just don't care anymore. And then you start wondering why you can't get any deeper with the Lord. It's because you've been ignoring God's will for your life. And God gave you the big thing to do and you said no. Or you just said later and now it's years later. Obey the Lord. Do what he's called us to do if you want to see the kind of victory that we're going to see Saul and Barnabas have. Pretty cool picture of what's going on in the church in Antioch. And from then on, we're going to see what's happening on the journey. So let's start in verse 4 and we're going to read down to verse 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So they're now going to go 16 miles west to the city of Seleucia, which is a port town where the Orontes River meets the Mediterranean Sea. And they're going to set sail for Cyprus. Cyprus is an island. It's 60 miles west of Syria in the Mediterranean Sea. And they disembark at Salamis, which is a city on the eastern end of the island. You'll remember Barnabas was from Cyprus. So this is a very natural place for them to go. There's a great long history in the church of people getting saved in one country and then going back to their home country to share the gospel. And Barnabas was maybe one of the first who did this. And in verse 5, we see for the first time what is going to be the way that Paul does ministry for the rest of his life. He preaches to the Jews first in the synagogues, and then when he was rejected, or if he was rejected, he would go to the Gentiles exclusively. So they probably are going throughout this whole island. Every synagogue they stop and they preach the gospel. You'll remember from chapter 11 that Cyprus had already been evangelized some. Ironically enough, when Saul, this guy, started persecuting the church, people went out and one of the places they went was Cyprus. So possibly they were linking up with a church that already existed in Salamis and those churches are helping them along. Who knows? We also get this note 
in verse 5 that John was with them. Now, this is John Mark, the one that would write the gospel of Mark at the dictation of Peter, the one who in the last chapter, his mother Mary was the one that had the, the church in her house where Peter went after he was released from prison, where the big prayer meeting was going on. And it's also very likely that Mark had some encounter with Jesus during his life and even on the night when he was betrayed. And it says he was brought on to help them as a hooperaten. A hooperaten comes from the Greek word for under and the word for rower. If you've ever seen that movie Ben-Hur when they're rowing, <laughs> they're rowing beneath the decks. That's that word. And that's not literally saying they brought him to row the boat. It, it was used as a word that just meant you're a servant. You're there to help. You're there to do whatever. Mark is probably not preaching at this point. Mark is the one that goes and picks up lunch while they're working on something. Mark is the one that's going to book the hotels and all the rest. We need all kinds of people. And he's probably being trained to be a minister. And this is exactly what he would do. He would go on to found the church in Alexandria in Africa, which is was one of the centers of Christianity for a very long time. And he would be martyred eventually. But he's not there yet. And Mark is actually going to give these guys some trouble in a few chapters here. Now, Salamis itself was a hub of Judaism in Cyprus because Cyprus had been fought over for centuries. If you look at a map, it's a very strategic location if you want to have any kind of control over the coastline of Phoenicia and Syria and, of course, Israel as well. Cyprus was known for its copper. Copper back then was known as Cyprian brass, so brass from Cyprus. And the word copper itself comes from the Latin word cuprum, which is a derivation of Cyprus. So when we refer to copper, that word has come a long way from the word Cyprus. So this is where they were in this kind of place. And it was a senatorial province. And you know the Roman Empire had a senate, very proud of their senate and their democracy, but it was also an empire. So you had the emperor and you had the senate. And a senatorial province was a province that was ruled by the Roman Senate, not directly by the Roman Emperor. This would have been for a more peaceful location where there wasn't much threat of rebellion. There would have been no troops quartered here. And there would have been a yearly proconsul who rotated. We're going to meet the proconsul of Cyprus in just a few minutes. So this is a peaceful place. This isn't like Judea and Samaria where there's soldiers everywhere and there's centurions over there and the governor is harsh and having to crack down on the people. This is a nice place. Today, however, Cyprus is a hotbed of Christian persecution. There was a 2019 British report that said that Christians are oppressed there very unlike anywhere else. Churches are shut down. Property is confiscated. There is a police presence in every church service there. All of that happens in the north third of Cyprus because the northern third of Cyprus is occupied by the Turkish government. There's the Turkish government of Cyprus. And then in the south, you have the Greek. It's not really Greek. It's, it's a Cyprian government, but it's culturally and ethnically, it's Greek. And the Greek Government is the only one that's recognized, but it's, it's very similar to Berlin with the east-west Berlin thing going on, northern and southern Cyprus. And in north Cyprus, our brothers and sisters are under very serious persecution, so please keep them in prayer. The south is much more open. You can preach the gospel as much as you like there because they are very proud of their Christian heritage as opposed to the Islamic influence of the Turks. We do not get a lot of details on what happened in Cyprus I think part of this is because Paul is never coming back to Cyprus. When Paul leaves here and Barnabas leaves there, Barnabas will go back. We'll see this in a chapter or so. Paul will not. So there aren't as many stories for Paul to tell Luke because Luke is going to actually join Paul in a lot of his other journeys. So we don't get a lot of details, but there is one very interesting story. Let's start in verse 6 now. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So remember, Salamis was on the eastern end of the island. Paphos is all the way on the other side, on the western end of Cyprus. And this is also 
another very prominent city. This is where the proconsul was. And there was also a, a religious reason why this was a big city. Paphos, what was called at this point Old Paphos, had been a very famous city in Cyprus until it was destroyed by earthquakes. And it had been ravaged. It was a very, I guess, a hotbed of seismic activity. So they moved it down to where the seaport was and they made what was called New Paphos which is where Saul and Barnabas now are. And this city was known for the worship of Aphrodite or Venus, according to the, the Roman version. And this was a very specific worship of Venus. This was called Venus rising out of the sea. There was a legend there that Venus, the goddess, would go into the water and she would come out of the water and it would have restored her virginity because she was the goddess of sexuality and love, quote unquote. It really was lust rather than love. And it was a very popular scene in artistic depictions, as you can imagine. And worship of this goddess involved sexual copulation with the priestesses. Very, as I've said many times, all this pagan worship is very convenient to the flesh. And this is the city to where God sends them. The city where they worshipped the renewal of virginity by going into the water. And they had all these ceremonies and all this nasty stuff going on. Worshipping Venus. But here comes the gospel. And they're called before the proconsul, a man named Sergius Paulus. And he wants to hear about the gospel. Maybe he'd been hearing about these guys going throughout his island and he wanted to know. There are some inscriptions that we have found on Cyprus referring to a guy named Sergius Paulus. We've also found others in other locations. Very difficult to know if it was him or not because it was a rather common name. Both of those names are pretty common in that culture. And the proconsuls rotated every year. So he wouldn't have been there for a long time. So we don't know, but the fact is that it is very, very likely. And this is not really something you can question because we may even have evidence that he was there. But they're thwarted as they're preaching because this guy has a court advisor named Elemus Bar-Jesus. That name Elemus means wisdom, but it's not wisdom like Solomon's wisdom. This is wisdom like I've read all the secret books of the dead and I have magical knowledge. So esoteric wisdom would be a good way to translate that. And Bar-Jesus is an Aramaic name. Bar means son and Jesus, very common name. So probably his father's name, but Yeshua, Jesus means salvation. And he's a magician. This was a Jew who should have known better. He's called a false prophet. Rather than serving the Lord, rather than worshiping in the synagogue, he chose to bamboozle this Roman official and act like he knew something. And he was somebody special in order to gain his favor and his power. If you've ever read or seen the movies The Lord of the Rings, this is Grima Wormtongue in Theoden's house. The creepy guy that whispered in his ear and was manipulating him and trying to get him to, to submit to the Dark Lord. And that's what this guy was doing. This is exactly who this is. And here they come in, Paul and Barnabas, to start to preach. And I think probably what may have happened here, Sergius Paulus says, was an intelligent man. There were a lot of Romans and Greeks that read the stories of their gods and goddesses and thought, you've got to be kidding me. And they didn't really believe in these gods. So what did they do? They did what intelligent people, so-called, have done for a long time and continue to do today. They look to the East to see if there's any kind of weird mystery religions out there. Kind of like our culture did for a long time with the whole new age thing. With yoga and with mysticism and crystals and transcendental meditation. I want to know what they have to say. Because when you've abandoned your own deception, then you have to start looking for something else. And you might be willing to try something weird, which is what he's done. And Elemis provided that for him. But you know what the, the law said. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 12. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination, meaning wanting to divine the future, or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. The Lord told Israel, don't mess with magic. Don't do that. He says, among other things, this is one of the reasons I'm getting rid of the Canaanites ahead of you. Because they were obsessed with this demonic, magical stuff. And you know, the Cypriot people here, through the worship of, of Paphian Venus, they had found a way to dignify their own lust. They were lustful people that wanted to sleep around. 
but they knew that that wasn't right. So they come up with a religion that lets them go and sleep around. And now it's cultural and now it's worship and now it's okay and it's allowed. It is very unfortunately common for us to dignify our sins even though God has explicitly forbidden them. We're not just doing it because we want to. We're doing it because there's value to it. Like all forms of witchcraft, Galatians chapter 5, verse 20, puts witchcraft in the category of the works of the flesh. Witchcraft was the sin that Samuel compared rebellion to in order to tell you how bad rebellion was. What is magic? It's the attempt to gain power you do not have or knowledge you do not possess by means of spirits and strange spells and powers rather than from God. What's the big deal about wanting to know the future? It exercises a lack of faith in God who knows the future. Why do you want to have power to manipulate people and to control events? You're not trusting the sovereignty of God. You are arrogating to yourself something that should belong to the Lord alone. And we've talked about this before when we went through Simon the Mage. Don't mess around with this stuff. Don't go to fortune tellers. Don't look at your astrology chart. Don't get into the weird crystal thing. Don't get into all the, the potions and stuff that people sell, even if it's dressed up in something very dignified. Oh, it's a different kind of medicine. No, no, no. Don't get into that stuff. It's magic. We don't do that. We trust the true and living God. We're not trying to manipulate events on our own. We trust the Lord and his Holy Spirit. It is wickedness, you guys. And it's very common for it just to slip in a little bit. Stay away from that stuff. You don't want anything to do with it. And the Lord has commanded you to leave it alone. Now, whether or not this guy had real power or not, it's sort of like Simon the Mage back in Acts 8. We're not sure if he actually had power or if he was just a trickster, if there was demonic influence behind this guy, or if he was just, I don't know, he, he was like one of the guys in Las Vegas that can saw people in half. It doesn't matter. Whatever the case, he saw his power slipping away. He saw if these guys bring this message of liberation and freedom to the proconsul, they might become his new favorites and he's not going to need me anymore. So we're going to resist these guys. But this dude doesn't know who he's messing with. Look at verse nine. But Saul, underline this part, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. How about that? This is Saul of Tarsus unleashed. From now on, he's going to be referred to as Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. That name change is actually significant. The name Saul, aside from being named for Israel's first king, it meant desirable or wanted. But now the name Paul means small. And I like that. It could have been no more than Saul kind of sounded like Paul. Saul was a Hebrew name. Paul was a Greek name. But I think there's some significance to that. He's willing to be small for Christ's sake. And the Lord has taken all of that passion and zeal that he had, all of that love for the traditions of his fathers that made him become a violent persecutor of the church, and the Lord has redirected that and aimed it in the direction of the gospel. And now you see all that aimed at Elemis Bar-Jesus. <laughs> he blasts this magician. And I'm inclined to think that he interrupted Barnabas here. Because Barnabas, remember, was a wealthy man from Cyprus. He was sort of the leader here because Paul had just been brought into the fold, so to speak. They're in the court of a Roman. So Barnabas is probably speaking the gospel. And you can imagine Elemis Bar-Jesus, this magician, whispering in the king's ear, contradicting everything Barnabas says. No, he's reading that scripture all wrong. He doesn't know what I know. He doesn't have the secret knowledge. That's not how you read that passage. Isaiah 53 isn't referring to the Messiah. It's referring to the God within. Don't you know that? And Barnabas, who, Barnabas was a very amiable guy. He's probably trying to be nice and, and calmly debate. That's not Paul, though. Paul blasts this guy and curses him by the Holy Spirit. And you got, you got to see the play on words here. This guy's name was Bar-Jesus. means son of Jesus. He was no son of Jesus. What does Paul call him? You son of the devil. You call yourself Bar-Jesus? You're Bar-Diabolos is what you are. You're a son of the devil. The enemy of the truth. Because you've got the straight paths of the Lord and you're twisting them. 
I think that Elymas very likely may have claimed to be a rabbi of some stripe. And he said, listen, Sergius Paulus, there's rabbis everywhere. And they teach the very basic truths. And it's nice for everybody, but you're an intelligent man. You need to know the depth of knowledge that I possess. I can teach you the truth. So while Barnabas and Paul doing what they do and arguing from the scriptures, here he comes twisting those same scriptures. So not only could Paul not stand this guy because he was resisting the gospel, he was also twisting the Hebrew scriptures, which Paul had a very high regard for, and he's not going to stand for it. He calls him an enemy of God. Here's something. Do you think that Bar-Jesus thought of himself as an enemy of God? Maybe he didn't. Maybe he thought of himself, oh, I'm not against God. I'm using God. I just think that Moses was kind of wrong on some things. But when the truth came to town, he immediately joined the side of Satan. This is always the case, by the way. Whenever there are people who claim to be sympathetic to the church and they're half in, half out, oh, I'm not opposed to Jesus. I don't hate God. I don't hate the church, whatever. But the minute you stand on the word of God opposed to something that is in their interest, they're not interested anymore. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three, 23, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are very influential people who peddle special insight into God's word. And it casts off the gospel. People who say, yeah, the church, they've kind of got it, but they don't know what I know. And we don't come at it with magical knowledge. How do we come at it? I know science. I know history. I know literature. I know politics. Whatever your, your stripe is. Let me give you what it really means. And the church stands up and we say, no, that's not what it means. And now all of a sudden, they who are on our team are opposed to us. This is how we know. The Lord allows us to see this. We have to be bold with such people and not be deceived by them. And we also need to be bold with people who are duped by this. When you know people who are being deceived by a false teacher, you can't soft pedal that. You've got to get right in there and save their soul. Jude calls it snatching people out of the fire. Well, he knows, she knows things that other people don't know. You say, God didn't give us secret knowledge. He gave us a book. Read the book. <laughs> read what it says for yourself. Well, the Bible is so hard to understand. You ever hear that one? The Bible is so difficult. There's so many countless interpretations. That's when you open it up and say, you read that and you tell me what it means. Because the Bible is not hard to understand. It's hard to apply and live out sometimes, but it's not difficult. Paul in the spirit prophesies blindness over this man's life. And he is immediately struck with blindness. And says there was a mist and a fog. I don't know if that was like his vision was misty and foggy. Maybe there was even an actual mist and fog around this guy. It doesn't say. And he's looking for somebody to help him. And these people are like, I'm not touching you. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with this guy. Can you imagine this happening on TV? Can you imagine if there was some debate between a Christian pastor and some guy who claimed to be a Christian pastor but had all kinds of strange, weird ideas, and he keeps on twisting and perverting it, and the host is kind of guiding this conversation, and finally the Christian pastor goes, you are perverting the gospel, and the Lord is going to strike you blind. And then, boom, this guy freaks out on set, and he can't see, and his eyes are closed, and he's like, I can't see, someone help me. Do you think people might want to start listening at that point? That's what happens here. Jesus was kind to the lost sheep, but he did not spare the wolves, did he? The hypocrites and the false teachers. A shepherd is tender with the little lambs. But when the lion shows up, when the wolf shows up, that shepherd becomes a warrior. David fought off lions and bears from his flock. And this is what Jesus does. And this is what we have to do too. Don't spare the wolves. They're wolves. Spare the sheep. Love the sheep. And if we get a chance to help the wolves, then help them. But you got to watch out because they got teeth. And they're going to rip the flock to shreds if we're not careful. Look out for people who want to be Jesus and. Jesus and magic. Jesus and this weird idea that I found somewhere. Jesus and whatever. Jesus and is no good. Stay away from strange ideas. We have plenty to do handling the straight truth that God gave us, don't we? The historic gospel. And that historic gospel that people want to downplay and have been saying for centuries is irrelevant. People come out and say, oh, the gospel just doesn't really speak to our times. And we're not going to really be hearing about Christians anymore. And if the church doesn't change, the church is going to be dead. They've been saying that, y'all, for centuries. And we're still here. Stick with the historic truth of the gospel. The gospel that has overwhelmed the darkness. That gospel tsunami, right? That has overwhelmed everything. And the devil is finding in this story that his petty little kingdoms are threatened. 
The gospel is inevitable, and we must insist on the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Never compromise with a wolf. We fight off the wolves, and we love the sheep, like Paul did. Let's finish it up in verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I love that. Sergius Paulus believed, but not for the reason you think. He was astonished by the teaching. He had seen tricks before. I doubt Bar-Jesus was his first magician. He'd seen tricks, but it was the teaching. You're telling me that God loves me and died for my sins? I can have forgiveness. I can have peace with God. And all I have to do is believe. I don't have to go through some weird magical thing. Yes, of course. It's not the signs and the wonders that make the difference. Although I love them. It's not the buildings and the books as great as they are. It's not the celebrity converts. It's not the national day of prayer. We rejoice in all those things. But it's the gospel that matters and the gospel that makes the difference. 2 Timothy 1.8 Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, nor of me, his prisoner. If we have people that are standing up for Jesus and they're getting canceled, they're getting pushed off to the side, they're getting mocked, they're getting ridiculed, don't be ashamed of them. Oh yeah, I mean, that guy takes it a little far. What is that? Stand together as a church but share in suffering for the gospel. If I believe that, then I'm going to suffer. Okay, good. It's for the power of God. It's necessary. Don't let the elements of the world make you ashamed of the power of salvation. We've got a job to do. We can't let ourselves be bargained with. Just back off a little bit. Just calm down. Maybe let some of these other ideas in. Maybe there's something to offer. Not interested in that. At the beginning of the story, Paul and Barnabas listened to the voice of the Lord and obeyed his instructions for their lives, and they won a great victory. God has a call for you too. God has great victories for you to win. God has a story like this for you. So you have to find out what your job is and step out in faith. This tsunami of the gospel has now overflowed into the Mediterranean. It's overflowing Cyprus. It's going to go up into Greece and Rome. It's going to go up into the Gaul and the barbarian territories. It's going to overwhelm England. It's going to come across the ocean and overwhelm the United States. And it's still going everywhere throughout the whole world. And the Lord has a plan for you to be part of it. And now we're always afraid. Oh, the tide looks like it's going out. It's receding. It's going back. What's going to happen? The solution is the same as ever. When Christians who are full of the Holy Spirit will obey the word of the Lord in their lives and not compromise on the gospel, that's when we're going to see victory.